Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm honored to have a longtime client and outspoken industry legend, Jim Smith from Field Real Estate and Omnicom Companies as my guest today in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Jim Smith was one of the original employees of IA, Interior Architects, a global firm of architects, designers, strategists, and specialists way back in 1984. He has gone on to work in all aspects of the profession from architecture to real estate to the end user. Jim has never been shy about his opinions. And in the end, that's what makes him a great client. You always know where you stand. This is also the first time I'm interviewing someone who's about to retire. By the time this airs, Jim will be on to the next phase of his life and a well-deserved time to relax. Jim, thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. This is going to be a fun conversation. I'm not sure where it'll go. And uh, unlike many of the guests that we've had, you don't have any digital footprint whatsoever. So <laughs> the only the only questions I can ask are th- or the only sort of things that I I, uh, I know about you are what I know about you. So uh, it'll be uh, we'll see where this all all goes in the end. Um, so let's start present day. Um, how long has your career been in the design and real estate profession? That's a good question. It depends what you want to call it, where it started and where, where it might end someday. But I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood now of about close to 50 years. Wow. You know, in some form or another. And I'll give you a real quick background on that. My Kind of my first job was I worked for the mayor of New Haven, Connecticut, who was a guy that was doing all the urban renewal at that time. He's actually kind of the father of urban renewal. And I, it was it was a class project. And I sent a letter to him and asked him for, you know, I just wanted to meet him, wanted to write a term paper about him or something. So he had me in. The first question I asked him was when the hell he was ever going to finish this particular project in New Haven. <laughs> and at the end of this conclusion, he said, Are you working? And I said, yeah, I'm, I work at a supermarket right now, bagging groceries. And he's now... He said, you're going to work here. So I went to work for him at that time, and that was in city planning. So I started kind of in that realm, went off to college uh, at that point, came back. And my first real architecture job was with a fellow by the name of Charles Moore, who was the dean of the School of Architecture at Yale at the time. And I worked for Charlie for probably three years doing crazy houses and stuff. This is when postmodern all that was kind of in. And then I moved to Boise, Idaho. We'll skip past that real quick. <laughs> and came back and went to work here back in New York. And I guess this was 74 and went to work for Rockefeller Center. Oh, wow. And then eventually became the director of design and construction for the family when they owned the, the center. So I, I was kind of responsible for, I don't know, 18 million square feet of office space in the, in the building itself, in the restaurants and all that stuff. Sure. 
did that for about 15 years. And then I met Dave Morning and uh, we started IA and uh, built IA from, you know, two offices into what I call Colonel Sanders, almost franchising model. It's about 18. I do want to get into that in a little yeah, bit. So that was an interesting experience. And then David and I kind of split up. Uh, I guess that's now some 25 years ago or better. And I did some freelancing things for a number of years. And then uh, the past 12 years, I've been uh, working for Omnicom, mm -hmm. trying to do uh, straighten <laughs> out their office space. So, to speak. so, so with that, you are beginning the retirement process for all intents and purposes. New Horizon. New Horizon, exactly. Uh, doing some other consulting and, and things like that. Um, what are what are sort of the emotions around that after 50 years of kind of a career trajectory? You know, what what, what are you thinking as, as you're winding down from, from Omnicom? Uh, you know, I think the, 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 the biggest thing about all of this is I've never looked at anything as being an end. It's always a new beginning. And I think that's the opportunity simply because the past two years have been so radically different in our industry yeah. and what's coming as opposed to what's behind us. It's almost the future looks more promising than the, the most recent past, I think. So I, I think being involved in that is going to be a lot of fun. Okay. It's simple. Okay. Yeah. And and so now sort of, you know, nothing to lose, no, no bridges to burn. Uh, I'll ask you some of the questions I ask uh, every guest that comes okay. through. What annoys you about architects? <laughs> They only want to do architecture. I, I say that not in a bad way, but I was fortunate enough when I was at Rock Center, I met a guy by the name of John Portman. And John's company was Portman and Associates out of Atlanta. And John was kind of the, the forerunner, what I call doing everything. I mean, he looked at real estate as part of the package. He looked at building as part of the package. He looked at furnishing it as part of the package. And he really disrupted a lot of architectural kind of nuances and perceived, you know, law bylaws to go by. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from him. I just thought, you know, this guy, you know, he understands the total process and wanted to not control it, but be able to at least direct it and direct it in a way that was more of a benefit that he wasn't fighting with all of the groups all the time to try and get the design built this way. No, it was his design. Right. He was paying for it. He was basically, you know, and, and obviously a lot of that was sacrosanct to the hotel industry. He just, he had a kind of a gunslinger attitude about it, kind of a maverick, which I kind of always have been uh -huh. looked at as going after in some way. But I just admired a lot of what he did. And he, he steered me in a lot of very interesting ways from that. So I, I see that as a, a good basic model that most architects just don't understand it. They don't see it. And I'll I'll go a little bit further. Yeah. I, I don't know if if you guys have ever done it, but we did it at IA. It was a Myers Briggs and a thing called Best. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> if any of you ever taken this thing. No, I've I've heard of it, but I've never taken it. Well, at the end of it, you come up with a score that basically and the, the best is probably the better one of the two. It comes up that we found out out of like 500 people in the company that took it, that virtually 2% came up in the two categories, and the other 98% of the company came up in the other. Now, I'll explain that by saying BEST stands for bold, expressive, sympathetic, and technical. The 2% came up in the bold and expressive mode, meaning get the business and kind of get everybody excited about how to do it. The <laughs> sympathetic crowd 
and the technical were 98% of the firm. So I'm going, great. We want them going out and selling the business and trying to get the money back. Right. You know, if you think about it, they're not going to ask for it. They're too sympathetic and they're technical because they're worrying about a detail behind the, the, the door jam that you never see. Right. So I've always been more the B E, obviously. And I think that's the other opportunity that architects just miss. They're not they're not salesmen. They're yeah. they're artists. Yeah. And you know, Picasso made a lot of great paintings and made some money. You know, Da Vinci did some great work, didn't get paid all that well for it. Yeah. So I think if you can marry that with what I discussed earlier with like a Portman kind of on yeah. model, there's an opportunity. We try. We try here. Honestly, yeah. we, you know, we're, we're, we have designers that have a very good business sense. And those are the ones that end up really understanding and staying with us. Right. And then we've had the designer that comes in and it's my way and this is how it's going to be. And right. if the client doesn't appreciate what I do, then, you know, then forget right. that client. And right. it's like, but it doesn't work that way. That's yeah. not how it works. Not unless you're the client. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what, what uh, uh, kind of continuing on with the annoys, what, what annoys you about this industry, the sort of real estate architecture construction industry in general? I think it's an old model that hasn't adapted. Mm -hmm. you know, you, like you just laid out, there's, there's the real estate brokers and these guys have much more of the power with the client because it's derivative of one thing, money. Mm -hmm. It drives the deal. The second part is you're the artist. You're spending the stuff. So how do you kind of start to marry some of that? And, you know, this might be a, a, a good point to kind of deviate to a little bit, but if you can become part of the solution as opposed to being looked at as part of the problem, I think that's the, the balancing point that starts to become very beneficial. Mm. And to some degree, this may not be the best time to insert this, but I think it's probably apropos to what you're asking, is at IA, we were an interiors firm. I mean, that's that's what they wanted to do. And that, yeah. I have no bones with it. But any time that the economy would slow down or there'd be a change in the development of things or offices wouldn't be as successful as others, it was there's an opportunity to make a change. And one of the things that we did, to, I think, try to break that mode was go more, not facilities management, but actually go in and assist the clients. And this was in the early 90s, I guess, when everybody was outsourcing. Mm -hmm. And I saw the opportunity that you could take the brightest and the best that were good at architecture and business and form a group that could be inserted into a company's environment on a performance-based model. And I, I can explore that, I think, a little bit later in the conversation with you. But it, it really became very successful, almost to the point that that's what caused the split with David and I at IA. Really? Only because the Jefferson operation, which was the people on site, started to become much more profitable on a, on a yearly basis than the architecture did. Okay. But it was based on a, a performance-based model. Basically, if we save them money, we get a bigger piece of the, of the cash. Okay. And we were very successful at that to the point where the, the, the dividing line was really JLL walked into David's office in San Francisco and basically told him to get the F out of this business. Mm. So I said, you're going to be intimidated out of a business that's obviously disrupting their business? Kind of crazy, but all true. 
Yeah, listen, I understand. We 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 toe that line too a, right. a lot of times, right? There's times where you know, it's something simple as the furniture, right? You know, could right. we could we do more on the furniture side? Could we help with the ordering and the procurement process? Sure, but you know, then we have to have that whole talk with ourselves. Do we want to step on the furniture dealer's toes? And we have to tiptoe around right. all of these all of these little disparate parts to because you don't want to. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you don't want to ruffle too many feathers, but then in some cases you do. And at, at, at this point with in, in our business, I think the more architects can bring back into their under their own roof, the better off that, that they're going to be. Well, they were always the master builder. Exactly. Which meant you had to control most of the pieces. Exactly. We gave that up years ago. Yeah. You know, that, that in itself, it's a reinvention of what the business was really all about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it would have been interesting to go back in time, you know, and France or someplace when they're building Notre Dame or something and see who was really in charge there. <laughs> it's true. Yes. It probably was not the real estate broker. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't the real estate people. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So going back to, to IA, you mentioned a franchise model. What what does that mean? I you know, we kidded. We we had a our model was built around, you know, at the time Ginsler was was probably premier number one. And you had maybe HOK and a couple other had multiple offices. Mm -hmm. If you really go back, and particularly in the, in the interiors business, which you're in and we were in, it was really geared around have an office in every city, as I refer to it, or to bluntly put at times, you know, in my, my kind of limited way, I would say, you know, that's the Colonel Sanders model, put one on every block, so mm -hmm. to speak. Starbucks, hence, has gone and done the same thing. Right. So it was, it was a situation where it was about the money. It was purely the way we had structured it. Each office was freestanding in that regard, but it paid a certain dividend into the corporate load. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you know, you could be profitable in, in half the offices and not very profitable in the others and still a couple of guys at the top were making pretty good money. Okay. So I refer to it as a franchise model. I don't think it it, it really, in David's mind, looked as, as a way to look with national customers that had multiple operations. But if you go back, that was in the in the days of massive banking branches. Sure. Dean Witter, Merrill Lynch, all these guys. Where are they now? They don't have all of those offices anymore. That has all gone electronic. So again, that'll lead us, I think, into some other areas where I think there's an opportunity is not not CAD drawing, but looking at this this whole other thing, particularly in the last two years, how you can do a lot of this business online mm -hmm. or remote mm -hmm. or some their combination. And I that hasn't even been broached yet as far as an exploratory thing. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, I, I'm I'm a lot like IA, right? I I I'm old school in that sense. Like I feel like I need to have right. real real estate in these places and have right. staff there and they should have their own PL PL yeah. and and that's what's going to grow the firm. But the reality is, you know, a firm like ours, we're basically doing everything out of two offices, New York right. and New Jersey, and we're doing national work. We really don't need, especially because of COVID, right. we really don't need that presence. Yes, we have to travel a lot and, and yeah. maybe it's a disadvantage, yeah. but we are making it work and we're making really good strides at that. Right. Um, in that. And I always, I always admire firms like IA, like Gensler, that have 
many, many offices. It really is something that I've aspired to um, just because, as you talked about, the the recession, right? You know, that if you're in these other markets, you know, at some point, they're all going to be doing something where maybe, you know, in in some of the other markets, they're not. Um, We've diversified in terms of project type to get out of only corporate interiors, specifically for that reason, because, and thank God, or the pandemic would have have absolutely killed us. Well, you know, I think if you take it, the other model that ties to that, really, Christian, is we had a discussion. Is the more we were growing, it was it was commonly referred to between David and I and a few others. It was the corporate load because that covered us economically. Mm-hmm. Just meet the corporate load, and we're fine. Yeah. Well, what about the rest of the? Well, you know that'll work out. So you got a lot of you got not a lot, but you got some marginal players that were you know in theory were equal footing in the company in that regard. And that was kind of crazy, but. We, I explored the, uh, the possibility of, fine, have sales offices in cities if that's what you want. Then take all of your production and move it to Oklahoma <laughs> go, or, you know, Arkansas. Get the state of Arkansas, say, we'll bring 500, you know, technical jobs to your location. You train them. You give us tax incentives and we network there. Now, this is 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Had it been anticipated and bought into it would have been a way where why do we have 50 architects sitting in a in resident or in a, you know a, a, a office space in midtown Manhattan at 70 80 dollars a square foot yeah. and what are they doing they're working on a CAD machine yeah. and they're giving the money back to the clients because they're sympathetic and technical so <laughs> it was it, it wasn't well appreciated then I can tell you <laughs> that's funny I love it so kind of reflecting back on your career um, what what changes have you seen in the profession itself over the years? There's a lot more players. There's a, you know, there's a diversity of that. As you said earlier, I think there's very few firms back then that were national. I mean, they claim to be, but there really were only a handful. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to worry about certain ones. It becomes very localized to the marketplace you're in. I think today the opportunity is that you can be in those locations more digitally as opposed to being there physically, mm-hmm. which is what now customers understand or the, the new customer that's becoming more ingrained. Somebody of my age, it's they got to be sitting in front of me so I can go meet the guy at a restaurant and have lunch with them. Right. It'll, these kids that are coming up in this now, that's not how they get business. It's social media. Yeah. It's all this other stuff. And who's the best at doing this and how can I get a hold of them? You know, it's it's almost like going back, as I mentioned to you on a couple of occasions, what I call horizon events. Go back and look how long the typewriter was in vogue from sometime in the 1800s up until 1975 or some crazy thing. It was a typewriter. Yeah. Then there was a short window of call it the fax machine, if you remember that thing. (laughs) Uh And then computers started coming in in mid-80s that obliterated those two other industries. Yeah, Architects haven't done that. Oh, yeah, we got CAD. Oh, wait a minute. I'm trying to look at what's around the, not around the corner, but what's the next event that we can plug into. Not make it mainstream today, Mm -hmm. but this is coming at you so much faster. Look how long I say the typewriter lasted. Yeah. And then these other little segments that were sitting there for a period of time. 
Yeah, and I talk about it on this podcast, I talk about it all the time, is that we really have not, architects have not evolved all that much. That right. yes, Revit is a, definitely a step in that direction because now you're taking on the 3D, but in the end, you flatten out the uh, 3D model, you print it out, and you give giant sheets of paper to a contractor. Right. And it just seems like such a waste of all that work that went in there, and you're going back to the exact same way we yeah. built hundreds of years ago. There's well, really no difference. You know, the, the one thing that... I've always been a student of looking and listening and seeing. All right, we were. I had a, 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 a one of our teams was out at um, General Motors in Warren, Michigan, which is I don't know if you've ever been to Warren, Michigan, but it's the Saarinen designed. Oh yeah, the, the, I know it. The entire campus. Well, that's where we were, and we were working with the facilities people, and they had us doing their all of their facilities management and such. And it, there were two distinct moments that I really thought, okay, these guys are, they got to know what they're doing. You know, they're ahead of the time. They're with it. This is back in the early, late 90s, I guess. And they brought out an overhead projector, you know, one of those gel slide things. Uh -huh. And he said, we'll show you what our projections are. I was like, are you kidding me? You had to go make that slide to bring it to the room, to set it onto a slide projector so we can look at it. Is any of this real time? No. Right. They didn't have – I thought these guys would have the, you know, the most focused event towards information. A sidebar to that where, you know, look at technology and where it can go or how you can economize on some of this stuff. There was a fellow there in purchasing by the name of Gonzalez. He was head of purchasing at General Motors in the late 90s, early 2000s. His role was to try and reduce their costs on cars per, per thousand or whatever the heck it was. He did something because he explained it to me, and I thought, this is crazy. On the production line at General Motors, there, when you put the windshield on the car, there's two guys that do that mechanically. Then the car moves down, and they put wiper blades on. Two guys do that manually. Mm -hmm. Well, he looked at it and said, you know what? I'm going back to the guy that puts the glass on the car and tell him one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, I'm going to give you all my business. You're going to get every windshield that goes on every car out of General Motors. What's the catch? The catch is you're going to replace those two guys putting the wiper blades on because you're going to do that too. <laughs> so what has he done? He's cut his costs and saved himself time. Yeah. That has not been done in this industry. We're yeah. still doing it the same old way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's ways to look, I think, in other areas. These aren't, you know, massive changes events. These are minor tweaks. Yep. That can bring revenue that then, if you're working under a model that is, as I described earlier, is much more driven on cost savings as opposed to a fee standing here. Yeah. Who do you think is going to win that game? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're not doing. Yeah. That's and that gets into how do I take costs out of these jobs? I've got to have control of those other pieces, whether it's the construction, whether it's the furniture, whether it's the building. How do I put this all together in a better way? The master builder formula. It's it's ancient. Yep. Just hasn't been reapplied. Yeah, it's true. And and you know, we talk about this all the time. When you go to a simple look at a simple corporate interiors job, you know, let's say in New York City we would get four dollars and fifty cents a square foot. Right. You know, ten years ago. Today we're still getting four dollars and fifty exactly. cents a square foot, or right. maybe even less, depending upon now. Now, due to the pandemic, right? So, and ha something has to give because obviously, 
not just inflation, but everything has right. gone up. Uh, right. it, it, and that's so. So we need a different model along the way. That's going to well. Gonna it's like anything. That. If if somebody comes up with a, you know, a not virtual reality, but an IA kind of thing in the regards of artificial intelligence, who's going to need the architect? <laughs> Somebody's going to go talk to this thing and tell it what it wants, and it's going to come up with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that really is part of the not too distant future. Yeah. So what do I need you to do? Stamp a drawing? I can, you know, I'm, I'm sure we got something around here. We can take care of that real fast. There are some. There are like Gensler's doing something similar to that. There right. are some companies doing uh, developing technology, but we're doing technology similar to that. Right. So there, there are companies that are looking to do that. Uh, we've got to get. I honestly, architects need to talk more together to kind right. of pull it all together. We all do it all on our, on our own and pretend we all don't exist. Right. Wow. So <laughs> what? Um, you know what? What warnings would you give another architect entering this profession? I, I think really, if you get into it to be an artist, there are opportunities for you. You know, there's always going to be that gifted person who can do art. If mm -hmm. you want to put the art of the architecture piece, I think there's always that there's always going to be, I hope there's always going to be a need for that kind of an individual. I think though, but for a lot of the, the segmented markets that we're in, whether it's corporate office interiors, you know, that probably had its heyday in the sixties, early seventies. Mm -hmm. Today, it's becoming much more utilitarian. Yeah. As to, you know, if I go in an office in Milwaukee, it doesn't have the view as this has, but it looks the same as the office that I just came out of in New York. Yeah. So there's no, there's, would the creative part of that, if it's all black this year or all blue next year or all green <laughs> the year after, I don't think we're, we're stretching ourselves with some of that. So what's our little uniquenesses that we could bring to it? I think if somebody wants to be the artist, there's always going to be the place for it. You're going to have to be a darn good artist because mm -hmm. the competition's going to get real tough, but it, it, in today's world, I think that there's more opportunity to figure out things. How can you get the, the feeling of the art at a lower cost product cost point? Mm. And, you know, those are going to be the real challenges. And if you can find not a lot of those people, but get a couple of them. You know, you got a Super Bowl champ on your hands here real quick. Right, right. So, so in speaking of the office, let, let's kind of talk about that and the changes since the pandemic. Um, you at working with Omnicom, you know, Omnicom is a global company, um, you know, how many thousands of people work there and you have millions of square feet of office space right. that, that, that you essentially managed for them, ran in terms of design and construction. Um, I remember we were actually in John Wren's office, who is the CEO of, um, of Omnicom the day before New York City was shutting down. Right. We were doing a final materials presentation to him. Right. Um, and it was like the next day everyone was going virtual. Uh, I don't think John really gave a crap about the final colors of his carpet or anything at that point. I think he was more like, what are we going to do here? How's right. this going to all work? I got thousands of people. I got to somehow figure out how to get to work from home in the next 24 hours. Uh, but somehow we all managed to do it, right? right. Um, whether there were hiccups along the way, I mean, we did it. Everyone did it, right? Corporate America did that. So how does, how has that affected You know, I business? don't know if, if, if there's a, a real 
not final answer to that yet because I think it's been evolving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the good thing. I think early on, everybody thought, oh, see in three weeks. You know, I mean, I, I really, I thought, okay, this is going to blow over a couple of days. <laughs> you know, the president said so. You know? <laughs> so how, how well that all worked out. But, you know, it, it's, it didn't really work out, but it did change the mindset. And how do you use office space? You know, it, it kind of goes back to that WeWorks thing. You know, they, they were probably positioned in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that was built for a different model. It was yeah. to make money and sell it and get out of it. I, I really think that the opportunity that came out of that goes to the real, how do you start to integrate more of this technology pieces to, I can be in my car and be in the office. Yeah. I could be on the beach. You know, everybody, you know, socially, it's it's been difficult to get that. But you're dealing with a workforce today that the, the guys of my age and maybe a little younger, they want to see the guy in the office. Yeah. And you know what? We wouldn't be making the money or Omnicom wouldn't be making the money they were making if that was the philosophy because nobody would have gone in. Yeah. So everybody adapted to it very quickly. That's also the, the challenge of what we do. How do we adapt to it? How do we make that experience still part of the experience? And I think a lot of that's going to go more virtual than it is really tables and chairs and desks and furniture. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, again, I go back to the typewriter and this disruptor showed up called the fax machine. And then another one showed up right behind that and said this, I think it's, it's a work in progress right now. And it doesn't mean all these offices are going to disappear, but I think they might be more remote and, you know, take an old Sears and Roebuck store and turn it into a, it's not a WeWorks, but it's a place where certain companies could could focus in and use it for those facilities where people could come and go and use and talk securely and such. Yeah. But most of this is going to be being done in a different format. Yeah, it's become acceptable, right? I mean, to see someone at home as and someone in an office and right. this sort of kind of anywhere and everywhere is a meeting. And it's, uh, listen, I'm from that same school where if you were not at your desk, you were not working. Right. Uh, and even me, you know, as one of the owners of the company, I felt I had to always be at my desk, you know, show yeah. that example that I was here, first right. one here, last one out kind of thing. And, you know, now looking back just two years ago, that seems kind of stupid, right? <laughs> well, I don't think it's stupid. It, it's a reactive thing mm -hmm. that you had to do because your mindset was set. That's what I do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's again, it's, and maybe I use too many analogies, but, you know, I used to show clients a, a graphic. It, it was a graphic. It, you know, we didn't have all this virtual reality at this point. Of, I called it a map of the United States. And I may have discussed this with you before, so correct yeah, me if I, I didn't. So. It was basically, if you look at a map of the United States, you always see California's on the left side and New York and the East Coast is on the right side. And you can look at it and say, oh, that's a map of the United States. I had a, a, one of our people do a, a kind of a sphere drawing from the arc of the polar, you know, the uh, North Pole. So what you were doing was this peekaboo over the top was now California was over here and the other New York was in the other position. It was flipped. Mm. And I had a client. I said, what the hell's that all about? I said, I want you to think differently. Tell me what that is. And he looked at it and they're looking upside down and all that stuff. I have no idea. <laughs> so then we could rotate it and show them the thing. And I said, you looked at something that you've looked at from grade school 
that California's over here and New York's over there. I just showed you the Russian ICBM view of the United States, okay? <laughs> and you would never yeah. even know it's coming. Right. That's the kind of thing that if you can get somebody's attention, that's how design can work too. I can change your thought about this yeah. if I get the opportunity. That's what this was about. It was a sales thing more than anything. Yeah. But it's we're, we're so isolated and trained architecturally and as people in general. You look at something and that's how you focus on it. Look at it differently. It's the same thing. You just didn't see it. Sales is a bad word in architecture for some reason. Yeah. Um, Ralph Mancini himself used to always talk about sales, yeah. right? I'm the salesman. I'm the salesman. I'm the salesman. So he was one of the exceptions, right? Um, he had to have pissed off a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I wonder why. I, I always wonder why. I mean, sales, you know, we, we disguise it as business development, things like that, but right. it really is sales. You've got to get out there and sell what your company does oh, yeah. uh, or you, nothing happens, right? Salespeople are really the most powerful people that exist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, go back and look at, you know, it's it's interesting you say that. I would say lawyers, doctors, all these kinds of professions that people, you know, think of up here would never advertise. Right. Now you can't you can't turn on the, the, the TV or anything without seeing some lawyer trying to get your business. Yeah. You know, if you've been in a car accident or something. Yeah. That was all looked down upon. Yeah. And that's the rudimentary one. So that's still looked down upon in the architecture oh, it, world. Again, because it's treated as this, you know, yeah. hierarchical kind of profession that, you know, you can't touch. Right. I and I don't I don't mean to demean it in any way. That was what Portman did. He the only way he could get the, the thing sold I got to develop the whole thing myself. Mm -hmm. And then it became people bought into it. I mean, that guy's built more stuff in China than any other architectural firm in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, he shifted his whole focus over there. Yeah. For lack of a better word. And was extremely successful with it. You can counter it with good, bad, or whatever. So. Right. Where, uh, where did you grow up? My dad was in the Navy. So if it had what I call a pier and a port, we lived in it. Um, pretty much. I mean, maybe the, the more interesting part of this whole thing, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, in the same hospital that John F. Kennedy was in after he got out of the Navy. All right. Okay. So, Chelsea. And then we moved to California numerous times, moved to Boise, Idaho. I've lived in New York a couple of times. In fact, my parents bought one of the first Levitt homes. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, now it's kind of an icon thing. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, you know, so... I've lived everywhere in the United States, oh, and wow. I I think that was a good experience. A lot of people, you know, you, my wife has lived 12 miles from this place she was born from, yeah. so we're now moving to Virginia, so this is going to be a disruptor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think it helped me because you understand people in different places at different times, mm-hmm. and I always kidded. When you lived in California at this time in the 50s, people say, back east, Chicago, and I go, no. Then you'd move to New York and you say out west, oh, Chicago. No, <laughs> there's all another planet out there somewhere. Yeah, so yeah, it's been enjoyable. That's great. And so, uh, and where'd you go to college? Went to the University of Kentucky. Oh, you did? And then um, came back from that. That's when I met Charles Moore when he was the dean at, at Yale. And I took some courses there. I didn't graduate from there or anything, but I, I, I went to work for him. He, and I was the only guy in the firm other than maybe the cat who was the the, the pet um, who didn't go to Yale that worked there. I mean, it was like, I don't know. I I was the renegade a little bit, you know, the why not, how come, what for. Uh And 
I always remember one instance in there where I thought all these smart people were really smart. And we did a, a kind of a, a dissertation, if you will, of a project. And the night before, we were trying to finish it. So I was talking. You know, I have a thing, as you can see. I can talk with everybody. And then the next morning, we got up. Chuck came in and he wanted, okay, tell me what you think of this project. And I was the last one to present. Everybody had taken everything I said and used it against me. <laughs> so I just learned, okay, get first in line next That's time. Right. So, you know, it, it was, it's an enjoyable, I've enjoyed what I've done. I've That's had great. fun with it. So, so and, and obviously we talked about uh, IA, but um, what, what was the transition to go over to, let's call it the ownership side to, to Omnicom? How did that I, I, come about? You know, it, it's it's funny. I, I when I was at, if you look at my career, I early on I started out traditional architecture, and both here and in in Idaho. Then I came back here and I took a job with Rock Center, which was purely management. Mm -hmm. And I was in a place at the right time. They were developing stuff and changing stuff, and so I was really on the owner's side of this. So I saw the other side at the same time I was actually doing the design thing. When I went to IA, it was like this sacrosanct that you didn't you didn't think about the owner side so much. You were driving the design piece. I'm going. We're missing opportunities here. Hence, that's the reason we started Jefferson mm -hmm. was to try and mend the two pieces together and benefit both at the same time. And then Omnicom again was back in the other role. So I've been kind of what I call twice. On the design side and twice right. on the owner side. Right. So I, I think I've got a good balance between what, you know, what they want and what they need. Right. So yeah. that's, that's the only way I could really answer that, I think. You know, and it's been a good, you know, you obviously as our client and at Omnicom have been good because you appreciate the design side. Right. You know, you understand the architect's roles. I, I always, you know, we always knew where we stood with you. Um, but we also always knew where, you know, our, you know, our fee needed to be. Right. Right. And, and you appreciated the idea that, well, I've now, this has changed or I've asked you to do something else or this is now a different scope. And so therefore you need to charge us for this. Right. And it makes for a much better working relationship oh, rather yeah. than that sort of nickel and diming thing that where it all falls apart in the end, right. you know, in construction. Well, see, and I think that's part of the, I'll call it the negative side of architecture. You're trained to do things in a way that's very much driven about just the art of it, so mm -hmm. to speak, not looking at some of the practical sides of it. And it, it still exists today. I mean, I've, yeah. I've run into a lot of these kids that, no, wait a minute. You know, like I say, look at the map. Are you looking at it right? Because right. if you turn it over, it's a different map, but it's the same thing. It, listen, it's hard. It's hard to ask a client, you right. know, for additional money. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to admit it. I've trained myself to be able to do it because we have to, it's a business and we deserve to get compensated right. for the things that we're, we're doing and the hours that we're putting in, but it's a learned experience and it's nothing that can be taught. You really truly have to, right. you know, do it. The, the problem too, is I think a lot of clients think they're, they're great architects. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it happens every time. I mean, in, granted, they're the guy paying, I get it, but at the same time, it takes a personality. How can I get you to come around to see the the other side of this thing? Yeah, and sometimes they'll they'll never see it. But you know, mostly you, I think, when you work with somebody, it's a relationship. Yeah, and if you can work the relationship in such a way, you don't have to be his best friend, but they respect you that you'll tell them when they're being wrong. And you know, this will be a stupid, funny story, but 
you know, when I, the first two years I was working and you know, Lee very well. And Lee, Lee's been a great guy. I've loved working with him at times. And there's other times I could, you know, is this building high enough to throw him off of it? But <laughs> he, he also understood when he was wrong about a decision and could come in and tell you that mm. it was hard, yeah. but you've got to get that relationship. If it becomes completely adversarial, it's never going to work. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think you, you, you need that. And a lot of, I tell you, I hate to say it in this way, but a lot of the people that, that I was fortunate enough to work with were women that in this field and especially in the, in the, in the facilities management part of it, because they just don't become adversarial with it. It's, it's a mothering thing. I don't know what, but you know, I hired a woman one time and she was terrific with clients. I thought, so I asked her, I said, what did you do in your, you know, before you took up this? She said, I was a flight attendant for Lufthansa. Yeah. So she had this customer service mentality yeah. attached to it. A lot of architects don't, they don't have a personality. <laughs> they have a, they have a way of designing, but they don't have a personality. Sure. And it either goes with the client well or it or doesn't. It's a problem. Yeah. And it, that's, you're just building inhibitors into this thing. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, you, you got to get past all of those things. If you get the, the right mix, you got you got something nobody else has got. Well, when you and I met, um, you know, I, I don't remember this. I met you down at, at uh, with Jim Dunahy at Structure Tone, right? Right. And um, you know, I asked for an opportunity. Could I work with Omnicom because I had known you from my previous firm? And to your credit, you said sure. And I think you said I'm going to give you probably the crappiest project to start with to uh, test your right. test your skills and. And that's what we did. We started with a with a crappy project, and then we kind of upgraded from there. And then before you know it, we've been doing, you know, right. amazing all the way to the headquarters project, yeah, right? Well. Which has been. But I like that model of kind of testing us out. I, I yeah. actually wish more clients would do that and say, "Hey, here's a little thing. Try it. Maybe if we work together, let's do something else together." Right. Rather than this sort of big dog and pony show to do the one major thing, right? Well, it, you know, you can always. I don't know. Sometimes architects just don't get it. And I'll give you a real stupid story that didn't get it. IA in our day of, of opening offices worldwide at the time, we decided to open an office in Seattle after we had gotten the Microsoft account with the Jefferson thing, which was people on site. And the whole thing was to obviously save them money, but also ring in the other pieces of our businesses. We found out about a, a company. Somebody said, you got to go talk to these guys. They, geez, they're busier than hell. I said, okay. So David and I went over there, met this guy. It's up on a, a, you know, kind of a crappy building, downtown Seattle. So we went in, sat down. They had terrible furniture and everything else. I asked the girl at the receptionist, I said, you know, what do you guys do? What do you sell or what's, what's your product? She says, oh, we do books online. I said, what? We sell books online. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> David and I don't know. It just didn't gel out with this particular client. It just it, it was it wasn't a it was a forced meeting. It just you could feel this isn't going good. We left many years later. Do you know who that company was? Amazon. Amazon.com. <laughs> yeah, and strangely enough, my daughter has just taken a job in Washington, one hundred percent remote. For so Amazon. that's the reason we're moving to Virginia now because right. the baby doesn't doesn't seem to have to see grandma all the time. <laughs> is she got a job with Amazon? So it's amazing how a thirty year cycle of something came around in a completely different way. But I would have never guessed that sitting in that reception area thirty years ago. Right, right. What um what would have made you select you know one architect over the other in in Omnicom? 
or at an, at any point? I guess feeling a gut, you okay. know, uh, it was, you know, I've, I've, I haven't picked too many wrong ones, I guess, based on that. It's a relationship. Yeah. You know, I'm expecting you to do X and I, I want something from it more than just the architecture. It's responsiveness. It's, you know, thinking value, mm. just somebody that you can trust. Yeah. You know, that if they say Thursday, it's Wednesday night, you get it. Right. You know, not Friday morning of the following week. And I think that, you know, I've picked a few times that, you know, uh, this is just not the right fit. Okay. You guys were a good fit. We've worked with Ginsler. It, it's it's a different organization set up in a different way. And it's it, you lose some things with some of that tangibility of texture, as I call it, you know, being able to work with people. So when you can find that, you give them more business mm-hmm. only because they're helping you in a much broader way than just a fee-driven kind of a appearance. Yep. Yep. I, 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 I agree. And thank you. <laughs> so sort of wrapping up here, what, what do you want your legacy to be, you know, in the field? <sighs> Obviously personal is different, but in, in, in our, in our profession. You know, it's individual. There's no monument going to be set someplace in <laughs> architecture land for me, <laughs> but that I think that I, I, improve some lives at some point with what I was able to do. Because, you know, the funny thing about interiors, somebody comes along and demolishes it in any way. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny to see some of your legacy things that you work so hard on totally destroyed 20 years later. Mm-hmm. But that's the nature of interiors. You know, when we built around the skating rink, we tore that entire rink out. We were building something. And David Rockefeller, this is when Nelson Rockefeller passed away and there was a family feud. David Rockefeller came in. I didn't realize, you know, families have have relationships like everybody. (laughs) He didn't like what we were building. So, you know what we did? We demolished it. We totally threw away what we had and rebuilt that from a $10 million project then to a $42 million project, which somebody's since come along and demolished again. Yeah. But the value of it was... That we got, uh, it was a really unique experience redoing that entire restaurant complex for Rock Center because it hadn't been touched since it had been built. Hmm. It was it was looked on as an icon. You couldn't touch it. And so, you know, we, we changed a lot of things and norms that people would today would never know. But everybody, it's always interesting when you go there now and somebody's running around and they say, well, look at this place. It's been here for 50 years <laughs> or 100 years. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if that's in your mind, that's what you thought, then then I've succeeded. Yeah. So if there's a if there's a thing there that some of it lasts and people appreciate it, that's that's really what it's about. That's great. I love it. So thank you so much yeah, for, yeah, for being the guest here on the Anti Architect Podcast and Good. sharing your stories. Um, and especially for all your support over the last 10 years. Been my pleasure. So. Look forward to many more years in some form. Absolutely. Great. Thanks. Right.